Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8 as we finish chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. We're going to take a break after we finish chapter 8 to then um, spend our summer in the Psalms. Those are always a wonderful time to invite people to church. I love preaching the Psalms, and uh, they're just so easy to connect with and so much to learn about God uh, in them. But open up to John chapter 8, and as no doubt you can hear, I'm a little bit under the weather, so keep six feet away from me. Um, If you want, I can give you an elbow bump. But pray for me. But we're going to begin, we'll get a running start reading in verse 39, and we'll read uh, all the way up to 59. The word of God reads, they, speaking of the Jews, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing your works. You are doing the works your father did. They said to to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and, and, and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets that you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And here's our verses that we'll be focusing on this morning. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, 
You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that we can read your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can hear of your son and that we can proclaim your son. We want to know him because we know that if we know him, then we know you, Lord. And we want to be like him because this is why you sent him, to save sinners so that we might be like you, Lord, and walk in a way that is faithful to your commands and to honor you with our lives and to enjoy everlasting, eternal relationship with you. We thank you, Father. We ask that you do a mighty work for the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you probably know that communicating with critics is not an easy task, right? Can you think of an environment where you were in recently? And maybe you weren't even talking about Christ, but whatever you're talking in, the people who were listening were just on the completely different page than you, absolutely opposed to what you're saying. And it makes it very difficult to navigate, right? How much more even, probably some of you have been in those conversations when you're actually trying to share Christ with people and you're experiencing that same sort of contentiousness. And we see Christ here, who uh, I I think is the master of communication, communicating to people who, verses earlier, they seemed to like what he was saying, but then as he continued to keep speaking, they totally turned on him. And this is why in John 2, Jesus didn't entrust himself to men because he knew the hearts of men. But Christ is an amazing example for, of a person who communicates to critics. It's not an easy thing. Most of us don't do that well. Most of us, as soon as the, like, the tension rises and people are set against each other, we just want to escape rather than faithfully communicate Christ. Communicating with critics is not easy. Can you guys think for yourselves the first person, maybe if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, for those of you who didn't grow up in a Christian home, can you think of the first person who's tried to share Christ with you and what you thought of that person? <laughs> One of the reasons you can, you, you, we should communicate with critics is because critics oftentimes end up being Christians. We had uh, some, we had, uh, most of you probably know, um, Larry Keller, who was in our church for uh, a number of years, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, but Larry used to pick me, uh, me, my brother up first, and some of their friends from El Segundo to drive them to, to youth group on Thursday nights. And, and my family's first impression of Larry was like, this guy's, this guy's weird. <laughs> you know, you're like, and I remember my dad even thinking, you know, like, like who's this like, 40-year-old guy who wants to hang out with like, my junior higher? You know, and, and just there's, you know, there's that initial like, what's going on here? Like, why would you want to do that? And really, Larry just wanted to communicate Christ. 
And, and the, the reason that I bring this up is because it's, it's so easy for us to be critical and contentious toward a person, and it's completely misplaced. And we were wrong about it. Could you, would you guys admit that you've been wrong about some people? Your initial assessment and judgment of people based on either a few things they heard or what other people told you led you to think a certain thing that was actually not the case at all totally mischaracterized them. And as you got to know that person or hear them or hear, the, hear, themself, uh, hear them themselves share about themselves, it totally showed that you are way off. This is why we communicate to critics. And this is why it's good news that us who are re- hearing this passage this morning and who haven't believed in Christ uh, can, can see. I hope that you will see that what you thought of Christ was off. And that after hearing what Christ has to say about himself, that you will hear him, you will believe in him, and that it will make an eternity of difference for you. And my hope is that for the believers that are here uh, who are wondering, how do I communicate Christ in, in, in places of contention to people who are, who are critical, uh, I hope that you will follow Jesus' example. And so the main idea here is in John eight fifty four to 59, we see three qualities of Christ that should lead us to believe in him and seek to be like him as we share him with crowds who are contentious and critical today. I'm not going to give you all those three up front, so I'm going to make you work for them. They're left blank on your notes there. But the first one is this. The first quality of Christ that we see here is that he is humble. He is humble. Look at verse 54 with me. In verse 54 of John chapter 8, we see the Lord Jesus respond when they say, who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than our father Abraham? You know, Jesus could be like, heck yes, I'm the best. <laughs> the best there ever was, right? Like, uh, I'm, the greatest, I'm the greatest thing that ever existed. But that's not how Jesus responds. Jesus is humble. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And you, you, you can tell just by the way they're asking the question that they're almost setting him up to, 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 to try to make some, you know, compare himself to Abraham, like the greatest forefather of the, the, the Jewish faith. But Jesus doesn't take the bait here. He assures them, look, if I make this clamor, I'm going to drive you all crazy. But he assures them that he's not just out to say stuff to try to make himself appear greater than he is or to try to elevate himself in any way or to try to compare himself and tear someone else down so that he can build himself up and be seen as something great, greater than he is. No, he's humble. He's humble. And I I think that one of the things that is crazy is if Jesus is who he says he is, and he came from heaven, and he's here. And he created, through him, all things were created. Like he, he's even the creator of Abraham, and you and I, according to the scriptures. If he is, the, what John chapter 1, verse 1 and to 3 says he is, that he was in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God, and that all things were made through him, then how... How do you share that with people in a way that doesn't come across as being proud and arrogant? 
That's a challenge, right? And yet, I think Jesus does that well. He's humble. And, and one of the reasons that Jesus can, Jesus can make extraordinary claims about himself is, is that they're true. He says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever, follow me, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verse 23, he said, you are of this world. I am not of this world. And I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says, if, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. And also, that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. These are amazing claims, but they're not braggadocious claims. Because he's a, a humble man. Look at what John 7, verse 18 says. Jesus says that the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So what's Jesus saying here? The Father has sent me, and I say all that I hear from the Father. And I speak with the authority of the Father. And so Jesus' humility is seen in the fact that he is not seeking to just say a bunch of stuff, say a bunch say a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff that brings glory to himself, just whatever he feels like, and thinking these people just need to know how great I am right now every second. No, he's listening to the Father, and the Father is telling him what to say, when to say it, and the Son is doing it and listening and hearing and speaking, and in this way, he is submitted to the Father and thus seeking the Father's glory and not his own. And so Christ can humbly make amazing claims because they're true, uh, because he's not seeking his own glory, but his Father's glory. He's not saying them in a braggadocious way. And also, God, God the Father sent him to graciously reveal these things so that sinners would hear and be saved. And so this is how our Lord is, is humble, even when making amazing claims about himself. Again, in verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. I love that how Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. We see here that he's totally humble and totally content to seek the glory of the Father over and against any self-glorifying efforts. When you think about some people, have you ever met somebody whose father was famous? It's kind of like a, could be a desire in the son. To, I want to I achieve the same greatness as my father. And so they can do and say and act in ways where they're trying to, you know, get that glory for themselves. Where it's like you, you, you're, you're prideful and you're straining you're just after vainglory, and it's just obvious, and nobody wants, to, nobody wants to be around a person like that. Or if you could think of a, a father uh, who is famous, and he wants his son to be famous, even if his son's not really that great, 
father could maybe be tempted to, hey, I'm going to make up stuff about my son so that, you know, so that he's, he's seen in the same light as, as me. None of that is happening with the father and the son. None of that is happening with, with, with God and with our Lord Jesus Christ. The father loves the world and sends the son. The son humbly comes and does all that the father wants him to do and humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it says that therefore God in Philippians chapter two highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every mouth confess that he is Lord. That is amazing. That's his humility. His humility even to the point of death, saying whenever the Father wants to exalt me, that's when I'll be exalted and I'll be patient and content and wait until that time. We need to take note of this because there's nothing that is more obnoxious to people than encountering someone who wants to talk to them about Christ who's prideful. I mean, if you understand Christ and you understand yourself, there's no reason for pride. Grace strips all pride away because it's not by our works. We've done nothing good, but God has provided for us. Are you a humble messenger, you believers? Are you humble? Are you trusting and communicating the things that the Father has sent you to communicate? Do you speak according to your own authority? or according to the authority of the one who sent you. Well, how do I know if I'm speaking according to my own authority? You're saying stuff that God didn't say. If you're coming in the name of God, and you're speaking stuff that God never said, you have an elevated view of yourself. You're prideful and you're arrogant. You have, you have dared to spoken that which the Lord has not, has not spoken. That's audacious. And yet I think we have a lot of people doing exactly that. They go out, they want to be messengers for God, and yet they don't even carry the same message of God. They're speaking on their own authority. Christ spoke on the authority of his Father. What the Father said to him, he said to us. And what we've heard from the Son, we speak to others. And when we do that, we're humble servants, just like the Lord. If you're a critic of Christ this morning and hearing all this, at least I hope that you can see Christ's humility, that he's not, you know, we're not asking you to consider uh, the claims of a prideful man. We're asking you to consider the claims of a, a humble and lowly man. And we hope that you will see that he is who he claims to be. Let's lead, this leads to our second quality of Christ that we see in our passage that should lead us to believe in him and seek to be like him as we share him with crowds that are critical. And this is that he is holy. He is holy. When you're thinking about how am I going to communicate Christ to people, you need to be humble and you need to be holy. There's so many people 
who write off Christ because they've been offended or sinned against by the people who bear his name. So it's incredibly important for us to be a holy people so that God's name is not blasphemed because of our sin. Moreover than that, if you were to think of some, you know, in regards to the character of a person, whether you should take their claim seriously, if the person is an immoral, wicked person, probably a high chance that they are lying and I, that I, I shouldn't take their claim seriously. But when we see that Christ is holy, we see that we have every reason to take his claims seriously and to believe them. We see his holiness first in his personal example and then second in, in what, he, uh, what he claims about himself. Look at verse 55. He says, but, but you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. They've previously just call, called him a Samaritan, which would be like a very offensive thing. Um, they've, they've said that he has a demon twice, so they've slandered him. And all he's done is told them the truth. And I think we see Christ's personal holiness here and how he patiently uh, endures and communicates the truth, even in, in, in the face of of. Uh, being slandered and, and, and verbally attacked. He doesn't return reviling for reviling. He doesn't punch his detractors in the face. Uh, and he doesn't pull out a sword and cut off their ear. He just simply denies their charge. That, that's how you de-escalate things. When someone says, you have a demon, and you say, I don't have a demon. When people slander, you just know that's not true. He says, I honor God, and you dishonor me. And it's interesting, he, when he was called a Samaritan, he doesn't say, no, I'm not a Samaritan. So you might not even have the time to deny all the charges. But you can deny the charges and simply move on, get, keep going. There's more important things to talk about. Stay on topic. They imply that Jesus is trying to glorify himself, and he denies it to move on to speak the truth. And the truth is that he knows the Father and they don't. And that leads us to another consideration in regards to his holiness. Those who are holy are set apart. And God is set apart in a way different than his people who are saved are set apart. But to be set apart and to uh, know God and to be God's is, is to not be of the world and is to be different and is to uh, enjoy a status and a relationship and a privilege that, that others do not. And so that's why there's this separation. And Christ here uh, communicates in a ways that show that he is, he is holy, uh, he's holy, distinct, and separate from those he's communicating with. Notice in verse 42, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from him and I'm here. In verse 39, he said, they would, uh, If they loved him, they would do the works. If they were children of Abraham, they'd do the works of Abraham, but they're seeking to kill him. And so the obvious fruit of being holy and being set apart, actually knowing God, as opposed to... Uh, as opposed to thinking you know him and not knowing him, is what Jesus says in verse 55. I know him and I keep his word. I keep his word. There's a lot of people, you guys, that say they know God. A lot of people. 
Even a lot of Jewish people saying they know God. Even a lot of Jewish people waiting and expecting the Messiah to say they know God, but they look Jesus in the face and cannot see him for who he is. And if they don't believe the Son, then they don't believe the Father who sent him. Christ testifies to his holiness. He knows the Father and he keeps his word. Do you keep his word? Those of you who have believed, do you, do you go and, and even if people are reviling you, even if people are attacking you, even if people are threatening you, do you keep his word? Can you think of any place in your life right now where you, if you're just honest with yourself, I'm not keeping his word? I know what he said here. I know what it, the Bible says here, but I've kind of just, I've just put my own ideas higher and hold them in, in, in more prominence than God's word. Do you know him and keep his word? The fruit of knowing God is keeping his word. Jesus would say in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you keep his commandments? He's a perfectly holy savior. And the reason he's come is to save you from your sins so that you could walk, even though you won't do it perfectly now, but you could walk in greater and greater likeness to Christ that you would know him and knowing him, you would know the father and knowing him and the father, you would keep his word. Look at what Jesus says in chapter seven, verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Do you see the distinction between Jesus and everyone else, including you and I? Jesus keeps his word perfectly, absolutely, never once broke it. Yet the Jews that he's talking to and us, none of us keep it. None of us have perfectly obeyed it, haven't even come close. And so we're seeing here Jesus' holiness. One of the things he asks in verse 45, he says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And then he says, which of you convicts me of sin? What is, it, what is he saying here? If you've seen me sin, Jesus says, then, then, then call me out on it. But if not, then believe what I'm saying to you. And Jesus' claim is that he is holy. He knows God and keeps his word about a year ago, you guys might have heard this, but uh, Don Lemon on CNN mentioned that uh, Jesus Christ, quote, Jesus Christ ad admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. And, you know, praise God we don't get our theology from the evening news, uh, uh, CNN or Fox News, thank you very much for that matter. We get it from Jesus. But if we look at what Jesus is saying, I know him and I keep his word, which of you convicts me of sin? Back in verse 28, he who has sent me is with me, has not left me alone, for I always do the things pleasing to him. What do we see? We see that he was holy. None of us would dare to make a claim like that. And here's the thing that's so tragic. When those who are critical of Christ are, are turned off by his followers who sin and fall short, they're rejecting Christ because of the sinfulness of his followers instead of accepting Christ for the sinlessness of Jesus. He's perfect. Go to him. Don't miss out on eternity with God and with his son 
because you think that Christians are hypocrites. Run to Christ. Look at Christ and is there, see if there's any, any hypocrisy in him. And if there is, then reject him. But if there's not, and I don't think that you're going to find anything, and I, then embrace him and believe in him. He is perfectly holy. And here's the good news. Because he's sinless, because he's holy, Isaiah 53 says that he could be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace was laid, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Down in verse 11, the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one, absolutely, with no sin. The righteous one, my servant, will have many be made accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Just as an animal without spot or blemish was required under the Old Testament sacrificial system as an offering for sin, so Jesus came and John the Baptist called him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no hope for you or I or any Christians if you don't have a Savior who is sinless. Can a sinner take away sin? Absolutely not. But yet Christ, who is perfectly sinless and conquered sin and obeyed at every step, conquered death and always did what was pleasing to the Father and who the Father uh, glorified as as as. Jesus had humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. That is why we have a great hope this morning, because he's a sinless Savior. And we should know him, and we should believe his word. This leads then next to not only do we see his, his humility and his holiness, but also his honesty, his honesty. So when you're engaging with critics, are you humble? Are you holy? And last, are you honest? Look at what Je- Jesus says some hard things here. And, and if, if Jesus was just like some person who's trying to like gain a big following from himself, these aren't the kind of things you say to gain a big following. Look at verse 55. He says, But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus assures us that he is speaking the truth. He never lies. We, we, we see him saying in chapter 8, verse 32, that... The one who abides in his word will know the truth, and the truth will set him free. In verse 40, that I have spoken you the truth that I heard from God. Verse 45, I spoke to you the truth, and you would not believe me. Verse 46, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus is saying hard things of the crowd, which has caused them to be critical of him. Uh, And he knows that the more hard things he tells them to answer their questions or their accusations, the more things that they have potentially to use as ammunition, ammunition to reject him. But at the same time, he is revealing true things about himself that people can also hear and heed and humble themselves and learn and be amazed and humble themselves before him. And so he's saying he is speaking the truth. 
He is honest, honest in a bunch of areas that I think that a lot of times when we're intimidated by people or by a crowd or just want to please them and want to be man pleasers, that we're not willing to be honest in these areas. We kind of fudge the truth or go light because we care too much about what they think about us. So gospel that should be clear ends up being muddled and things that Jesus was honest about, we kind of come across as not straightforward. Jesus was first honest about his relationship with the Father. He said that I know him and I keep his word. His relationship with his Father is unique. That's why he calls him my Father. And when they, when, uh, <clears throat> that's why he calls him his Father. I won't go that way. But his relationship with his father is one unique. It's one that, that, that began from eternity past and which disturbed his listeners because of how, how unique and how special the way he spoke about his relationship with the father was. Second, Jesus was honest about their spiritual condition. He said in verse 21 that you will die in your sin. And also 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And also in verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In verse, 40, for, in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And now in verse 55, you say he is our God, but you have not known him. Jesus is honest about the critic's spiritual condition. A lot of us, I think, when we begin talking with people, we, we kind of want to avoid saying anything bad, anything that would sound, you know, like, like we're prideful or condemning other people or anything that someone could, you know, claim that we're being holier than thou or anything like that. But in the process, we become dishonest and we don't speak the truth about our natural condition before Christ. It's a condition of spiritual blindness, spiritual deadness, dead in our sins and under condemnation and wrath. And if nothing changes, then we'll endure that wrath and condemnation forever. As a good doctor, Jesus does not die, uh, he does not sugarcoat it, but he diagnoses the soul. He has a unique relationship with the Father he's honest about. He has a, he, and he also is honest about the critic's spiritual condition. This leads next to Jesus being honest about his identity as the Messiah. Look what Jesus says here. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. You might be thinking, how does that have to do with the Messiah? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is an amazing claim that Jesus makes. And Ultimately, there's some different ways people have argued for what, what is being said here. Some have said that, and this is according to old rabbinic Jewish tradition, that Abraham was shown the future by God, uh, including the coming day of the Messiah. And so there's some debates on what exactly was shown to him. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, there's, there's this Jewish tradition that God showed Abraham the future, which would include the future coming day of the Messiah. Uh, secondly, some have argued that Abraham's rejoicing and seeing, uh, seeing it 
and was glad refers to his soul in heaven that rejoiced when Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem. And then third, uh, which I think is, is probably the, the sense that we should take, is when Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. Uh, he saw in his earthly life and was full of joyful expectation for the coming day of the Messiah according to the promises that God had given him. And he saw it by faith and was glad. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, God told Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so I think it's very clear to Abraham that the Messiah would come through Isaac. The Savior of the world would come through his son Isaac, whom at that point he had not even had yet, and he was a super old man, and his wife as well. And so it's like, how in the world is this going to happen? But we know that he believed God and has counted to him his righteousness. Uh, and they even laughed when God told them that you're going to have a child. They thought it was funny. Uh, others have, t- have translated that they laughing there. It's not as like a cynical laugh, but as a truly joyful laugh. And that, that could be possible. But nonetheless, I think that Abraham was filled with messianic hope through the clear promises that God had given to him so that he could see by faith the Messiah was coming and rejoice over his coming. And him having his son Isaac born is all wrapped up in that. You can't separate it out. And so there's great joy over Isaac because through Isaac would come Messiah. And if you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, I'll just read this real quick. It says in Hebrews 11 uh, that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place um, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And, when he, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And it says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, uh, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, the, with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, notice that, he's looking forward to the city that has uh, foundations whose designer and builder is God. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And if you jump to verse 13, it says, these all died in faith, listen, not having received the things promised, but look at this, having seen them And greeted them from far away, far off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So Abraham died in faith. I'd say in joy for the coming of Messiah. And so when Jesus speaks here of Abraham rejoicing to see his day, then, then Jesus saying, my day, is equating himself and showing that he's the Messiah, that the Messiah has come. And that this is his day. His day has, has dawned. And Abraham saw it by faith and was glad. And now this is important because think about how different that is than the way that those who are claiming to be Abraham's seed in this passage are treating him. Are they rejoicing and glad over Jesus? No. Which is just proof that they aren't doing the works of their father, Abraham. If they were true, faithful children of Abraham, they would see Jesus as the Messiah and be glad. And yet here they are, rejecting him, slandering him, and wanting to kill him. 
So Jesus is honest about his identity as the Messiah. And then this leads to the most astounding claim of all, and this is that Jesus is honest about his nature as the eternal Son of God. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 58. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And the Jews respond, oh, sorry, before that, the Jews respond when he mentions that Abraham saw his day and was glad. They say, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was like 2,000 years before Jesus. Some of you are like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, he, he, 2,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Abraham was alive and well on, on the scene. And so this statement, you know, they're, they're, they're dumbfounded that Jesus could talk about Abraham seeing him, and they take this literally, that, that Abraham saw him. Uh, and, and notice there's, a little, there's even a little shift going on here, uh, because Jesus says that Abraham saw him, and then they're like, what do you mean, you're not even 50? How could you see Abraham? You can already tell they're still considering Abraham greater. Like, you know, the, the more famous person, <laughs> it's like the more famous person is the one who, right, everyone's looking at and, and seeing, right? I don't you know, be like, walk around and be like bragging about, you know, oh, the famous person saw me. So they do that little trick on him. And what, he's, what Jesus is about to respond with will blow their minds. Because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. When they were asking him earlier, are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus is not making himself out to be anyone or anything that he's not. He is who he is. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Which shows us that at the very least, before Abraham was born, or was created, or came into this world, he's saying, Jesus is saying that he was presently and continuously in existence, you could say. And so what we have here is at least a claim to the pre-existence of Christ, possibly a claim to the eternality of Christ. And maybe if those two terms are big and you don't uh, let me just break that down a little bit. The difference between preexistence and, and eternality is that preexistence could entail that Jesus still had some beginning at some point, but that he just existed before Abraham or just existed before creation. That would be the idea of preexistence, which is, I mean, it'd still be a crazy claim. Um, but to have the claim that you are eternal is a, is a claim to deity. It's a claim to be God. And so... The difference between preexistence and eternality is that preexistence could entail that Jesus was created at some point in the, in the past, uh, while eternality would, would Im imply that he never began to exist. He's just always existed. Do you see the small distinction there? But it's important when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups that deny the deity of Christ, that they're going to make an argument that, no, he's just like the first, you know, powerful angelic being that, that God made. And, and, and ultimately, uh, I don't think that that's all that's being asserted here. And I don't think that that's what the Gospels teach us about Christ anyways. 
And now, why do I think that? Why do I think that when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, that this is actually a claim to eternality and also um, thus a, a claim to his, his divinity is one, uh, in John 5, 8 and John 10, we see them wanting to kill Jesus. And in both of those passages, it's because it's very clear he's making him, they claim that he's making himself equal with God. In John 5, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God and in John 10 I and the father are one Jesus says and the Jews picked up stones again to stone him and he and they say it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God later in John 19 uh, before the uh, b- before the Roman officials we have the Jewish leaders saying, we have a law, and according to that law, he, shall, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And so in all these different cases where they want to murder Jesus, they want to murder him for blasphemy, which if they're intending to murder him for blasphemy, then I think in our passage, when they pick up stones, they're doing the same thing. And so they're, 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 whatever Jesus said, they're hearing as a claim to an attribute or an action that only God can do. In half. And so, rightly, if he was not God, that would be blasphemy. But since he's God who has come in flesh, it's not. It's just the truth. Another thing that we can notice here uh, is the, the difference, if you were to look at the difference of the verbs being used. Uh, one commentator points out the present tense is remarkable both because it emphasizes the ageless open-endedness of Christ's existence and because it brings out the continuity between his incarnate life and his pre-incarnate past, meaning his life in the flesh and his life before he took on flesh. Another commentator says, there's a contrast between Abraham as a created being and our Lord as the uncreated, self-existent, eternal God. And I think if you were to look closely at the prologue, you would see that we've been prepared for this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you see that, the, that both of creation and of, of John, who it says there came a man from God who, uh, who was sent, sent from God whose name was John, both of those use the same verb that's used to describe Abraham's coming into existence, and it's juxtaposed with a different one that implies ongoing, ceaseless existence. And so you, it's, it's, and that's captured for us when John the Baptist says this, in verse 15, verse 15 in chapter 1, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus, and he would say that one, he came to testify to one coming after him that ranks way far above him because he existed before him. How could Jesus exist you know, before John the Baptist, who is six months older than him? And, that, and John the Baptist says, I don't even have, you know, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. Like I'm less than a slave compared to him. That's not just what six months difference makes in, in your life. There's more going on there. And the point is that he is, that Christ is eternal. He has always been. Being God, he has uh, no beginning and no end. 
He is the eternally existent one. Later in John chapter 17, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you, or excuse me, that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus enjoyed that perfect glory. God the Son enjoying the perfect glory of the Father before the world ever existed. And so when Jesus says, I am here, I do think that uh, this, is, this is a claim that's showing his, his divinity. Um, it became very common. If you read Isaiah 40 to 48, you'll see that the, the statement, I am, is repeated by God over and over again. And it's used uh, to, uh, to express that, quote, God is the eternally self-existent being who alone is sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent in contrast to the idols and false gods. As one commentator put it. And so we see if you look at Isaiah chapter 41 real quick, just to give you one example. If you turn to Isaiah 40, we can see here. Isaiah 41 verse 4. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, am he. If you jump over to 243, we can see, we can see more, more of the same thing. The I am he is the I am statement. In, in chapter 43, verse 10, he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am, or I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I jump to verse 25 of, of Isaiah 43. I, I am he. That's the I am. Both, uh, that's actually repeated twice in the, in the Greek translation of that is, is ego eimi, ego eimi, which is the same thing that Jesus is saying in the Greek in our passage when he says I am. And so I am, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. And so this gets repeated over and over and becomes a way that God describes himself as the eternally always, self, uh, always existing, self-existent God. And that he's the only God. And I think Jesus is very much employing the same thing and showing that he is eternal as well. This is reminiscent of the I am statement in Exodus chapter 3, when God sends Moses in, 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 uh, to deliver it, the Israelites. And they ask, you know, what, are, what am I going to say who sent you? And he says, tell them uh, that I am has sent me. And, and some people, there's, there's a lot I could get into with this, but ultimately I think it's, it's fair to say that it, Jesus, when he uses the I am statement, is, is, is certainly pulling on these different texts to emphasize his own eternality, not just merely his, his preexistence. Uh, lastly, to support that too, would be two Two important prophecies, and I, one in Isaiah 9 that you guys are familiar with. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this, so this Messiah who's going to come 700 or so years after Isaiah is called Everlasting Father, which indicates that he is going to be eternal. And also Micah 5, verse 2, says that <clears throat> the coming ruler, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so the idea here is Jesus claiming that he's before Abraham fits perfectly in with these messianic passages that emphasize the eternal nature of the coming Messiah. And so he is none other than the divine son. And this is important because if Christ is eternal, then he's way greater than Abraham. Way greater than Abraham. And if he's eternal, hear this, then he can give eternal life. Let me break this down for you guys as simply as I can. You don't bring your car to a dentist. You don't, right? And, and you don't bring your root canal to a mechanic. <laughs> That'd be bad news. So why would you go for your need of eternal life to anyone who is not claiming to be eternal life? Christ is claiming to be eternal life. The prologue says that in him was life, and this life was the light of men. And so we go to Christ because he gives eternal life, and he's honest about the fact that he gives eternal life. As he mentions in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. None of that could be possible. Christ could not give eternal life unless he was eternal life. And that's what one thing that we need to be faithful to proclaim. And so when you think about communicating, be humble, be holy, be honest. Be honest about Christ's special relationship with the Father. Be honest about people's spiritual condition. Be honest about his, Christ as the messianic identity, his, his unique nature, divine nature as the eternal son of God, uh, his, his, that he is the, alone is the one qualified to give eternal life. Be honest about all of those things, even if it results as it does for Jesus in rejection and slander and attempted murder. This should encourage you because the greatest communicator of all time Communicating himself to his critics did not win them over. Verse 59 says, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He didn't win them over. They actually heard it all and wanted to kill him anyways. That'll happen to you too. And that shows us that The goal isn't only to try to win people over, but there's one more fundamentally than that, one more more fundamental goal than that. It's the glory of God and me doing what God has told me to do, which is to go and to preach and to reveal his son, communicate his son. That's my goal. The rest is up to God. God has to perform the miracle. I cannot change the heart, but I can preach his son. And he has told me that through the preaching of his son, that his spirit moves and awakens and redeems and regenerates and saves people and others. It just removes excuses for their condemnation. And it further solidifies them in their condemnation. That's why we are the 
aroma of life to some and to, of, of death to others. So I hope that wherever you find people contentious and critical of Christ, that you will be a humble people, a holy people, an honest people, just as Christ was. And if you're here and you haven't believed in Christ, I hope that Christ's, Christ's humility, his holiness, and his honesty about all these things would convince you to take his claims for real and to believe in him and to turn from your sin and find that he is eternal life and he gives eternal life to all who will come and believe in him. Please don't leave this morning without doing that. He welcomes you in his grace and in his mercy because of his, his blood shed for you, for you to, to come to him and enjoy eternal life because he is eternal life. Lord, we thank you. We pray, God, that you would make us bold witnesses to these truths. Thank you for revealing your son to us and for many of us, Lord, changing us from critics to Christian, Christians through people you sent in our lives who faithfully contended with us and preached Christ. Even when we thought they were weird, even when we thought that they were brainwashed, confused. You used them, Lord, and so we thank you. Help us to be faithful to this task, no matter what happens to us. In Jesus' name, amen.